0: Acts chapter 26, but we're going to start reading in Acts chapter 25. I'll pick it up in verse 22. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, thou shalt hear him. And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come and Bernice with great pomp and was entered into the place of hearing with the chief captains and principal men of the city, at Festus' commandment, Paul was brought forth. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all men which are here present with us, ye see this man, about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here, crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and that he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. Wherefore I have brought him forth before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that... After examination had, I might have somewhat to write. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner, and not withal to signify the crimes laid against him. Chapter 26. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning if they would testify that after the most straitest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God, night and day, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, Which things I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O King, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecuteth thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecuteth. But rise and stand upon thy feet. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inherit among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance, For these causes, the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should be raised from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth these things before whom I speak, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. And thus is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. um, let's open with a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would ask that you would open this word unto us, that we might appreciate the things that thou hast set before thy children, thy saints, that they should go forth into the world and preach the gospel, and they will indeed suffer resistance and persecution along the way. Give us strength, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, what you have set before us here, well, let me just mention to the folks I gave a handout to, what you have there is kind of a list of the major players throughout this section here. And I had to write that out for my own benefit so that I could keep these people straight because this is the kind of the order that things take place there in terms of who the Apostle Paul is brought forth before. So you can read that. We covered it last week. But you'll find that there's uh, interesting relationships between all of these uh, people that are set before us here. Um, I would have you take a note uh, on the spiritual side of things that um, Herod um, is a type of Satan. And so there are four Herods set before us as we move through um, two in the Gospels and two in the book of Acts here. The first Herod is overtly antagonistic towards um, uh, Christ. He endeavors to kill him, and he kills all of the children around about the coast of Bethlehem. He's replaced by his son, Archilius, and um, it is when... Uh, Mary and Joseph come back from Egypt, that when they learn that Achilles reigns in his father's stead, that they go and settle in um, Nazareth. And then um, we have Herod the king in Acts chapter 12. And what's interesting about him is you recall what happened to that Herod when he lifted himself up with pride in Acts chapter uh, 12. What happened to him? He was eaten of worms and he was struck down dead. We have before us here uh, King Agrippa, which would be his son, And uh, King Agrippa is uh, with his sister Bernice. They are the son and daughter of the very same Herod that was killed in Acts chapter 12, struck down with pride when he came in there lifting himself up. And so we know that Satan would uh, endeavor to lift himself up. We read about that in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 11 and 12. and so here comes his son right in here in Acts chapter 25 with great pomp. <laughs> That's verse 23. So nothing's changed. But um, what you see in the scripture respecting Satan is that um, he's overt initially in the Bible where he comes and he um, deceives Eve and, and, and sin enters into the um, equation and then we, talk, we read about him in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he comes as an angel of light. So he comes appearing, and his ministers come uh, as ministers of righteousness. So you see King Agrippa here, and he appears to be a nice fellow, very reasonably minded, um, but he doesn't free Paul. Paul still is going to go to Rome, and Paul is still going to do the things that the Lord wants him to do, and he's going to essentially continue with this process where Paul is going to go to his uh, death. So not overtly, but still underneath the um, the surface of things, you have somebody that is in opposition to the gospel. Now, in verse twenty-three, we can appreciate here that it says here that they come into the place of hearing, and it says that they are with the chief captains and principal men of the city. Um, <clears throat> there was, according to Josephus, at uh, Caesarea, a um, five garrisons. Um, of five cohorts of Roman soldiers there, and a cohort is a 1,000 men. So there are about 5,000 Roman soldiers stationed there. So it was a a city that had a great deal of Roman um, presence. And so this is the largest, I should say, the most dignified and distinguished audience to date that Paul is going to preach the gospel to. So there's quite a number of people in this room in terms of the chief men of the city, and people that can exercise influence in the places that they go so god is taking paul along this journey where he's preaching at a um, a higher and higher uh, in a higher and higher political arena if i can use that language eventually he's going to preach before caesar himself they turn the page over and look at acts chapter 27 verse 23 and 24 and this is in the midst of the storm of the sea In uh, verse 23 of Acts 27, it says there, uh, uh, Paul speaking, For there stood by me this night the angel of the Lord, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them which sail with thee. So not only is Paul speaking for a great uh, group here of influential and distinguished individuals, he's actually going to go preach the gospel to Caesar himself. And it's uh, in... um, um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, where he speaks about having stood before Caesar on, on one occasion here. He says, at my first answer, that's uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, at my first answer, no man stood by me. So Paul had been living in Rome and he obviously had people that were tending to him. And uh, you might think that when he goes before Caesar, he might have somebody standing with him in support of him, but he's saying, no, nobody stood with me. At my first answer, no man stood with me. But all men forsook me. I pray to God that it may not be laid to their charge. Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Uh, Caesar, in this context, representing Satan, whom comes as a roaring lion, seeking seeking whom he may devour. So... Um, the Lord is going to take um, the Apostle Paul all the way to Rome and before Caesar, the ruler of the, the world, as they knew it at that time. Um, in the Gospels, um, the Lord speaks in a parabolic way when he talks about how um, he's going to pillage the strong man's house, the strong man representing uh, Satan in that context. And that's what the Lord does. This Satan is the uh, prince of the power of the air, uh, the god of this world, And we, as um, servants of the Lord, go forth and preach the gospel and pillage his house, preaching the gospel and uh, bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And that's what the Lord tells the Apostle Paul, exactly what he's going to do over in verse 18, which is a repeat from Acts chapter 9. So, nevertheless, Paul is going to go forth and he's going to preach at higher and higher levels. And so one of the things we should ever... um, Appreciate when we are preaching the gospel to somebody as well. I might be preaching to a fellow on my left. The person on my right might be listening in and paying attention to what's being said over here. So while this person is my object, the person that receives it might be standing over there. And so that's kind of the the um, uh, something that Paul would appreciate when he says in verse 29 here, he says uh, in response to uh, Agrippa, he says, and I would to God that not only thou, but also... All that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, such except these bonds. In other words, I am speaking to you, Agrippa, personally. And, and he has um, uh, Festus interrupt with a loud voice, you know, saying you're you're mad. But he's like, and then he continues. He says, "No, I'm speaking to Agrippa. But not only do I want Agrippa to be persuaded fully, I want everybody that that hears me, everybody, all the audience in this room, to hear the gospel that's being set before them. And we would desire that too. So. Um, Be cognizant of that when you're talking to one person, that maybe somebody near you might be hearing that. So when we consider the things that the Apostle Paul is subject to, um, we can appreciate that it's outside of the rational realm. Um, One of the sisters has sent to me a a link where I might watch some um, YouTube clips of pastors' churches in Canada being locked up, uh, being uh, locked so that the people can no longer attend those churches. And in one of the churches, I think they even put a fence all the way around because they would then meet in the parking lot. Okay, we can't go inside. We'll meet outside. So they are shutting down churches and arresting certain pastors in Canada. And the interviewer kind of always asks the question, well, why do you think they're doing this? Why are they doing this? Because it it doesn't meet with any rational um, explanation. Uh, and they even showed a clip of people going to Walmart or some big box store. You know, jammed with people. They're bumping into each other. They're touching everything. But you can't go to church, but you could go to the big box store. And we've seen that here, even in our own state, how they, you could go to a liquor store, you know, but you couldn't go to church. So we joked about how on the first Sunday of every month, you know, we serve the wine, call ourselves a liquor store, whatever is required to fly underneath the radar, you know, so that we can worship because that's what we want to do. So what is, what is behind all of this? And, of course, Satan is what's behind this. There's a, there's a spiritual war that is taking place and going on on this planet that began um, certainly uh, in Genesis chapter 3, and it has continued uh, from that day um, ever since. Um, the stated objective of Lucifer is that he would be like the Most High. He lifts himself up, and he will be like the... Most high. So he comes as an angel of light in Revelation chapter 13, which we were talking about this morning. It says that the world is going to worship him. And that word worship can have a broad context. It means to reverence, um, to, to reverence as well. And so the world is going to reverence the beast. The world is going to reverence he who has the power behind the beast, which is Satan himself. So in Revelation 13, chapter 4 and 8, it says all the world will worship the dragon um, through the first beast. And so we see the war begins in Genesis chapter 3. And um, the first casualties, of course, are Adam and Eve. Um, sin enters in. The world is cursed. And so the entire world is cursed at, on that occasion. And so we know this is going to play itself out all the way until the end of time, until the Lord finally comes and burns this place up and creates a new heaven uh, and a new earth. Very soon, right after Genesis chapter 3, what happens in Genesis chapter 4? Abel is murdered. So where is the seed going to come? The Lord has said that he would put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of um, Satan. So the next thing that happens is we see that Abel is murdered. And so Seth would be the one. Next one, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, we see that the sons of God and the daughters of men are unequally yoked together. And so what Satan would endeavor is that um, rather than Christians marrying only Christians, he would like to see Christians marry non-Christians, which would pull their hearts away from the Lord. And the Lord warns the Israelites of that in Deuteronomy. He says, hey, don't give your sons to their daughters and don't take your daughters unto your sons for wives because they will turn your hearts away from the Lord. And we certainly saw that with King Solomon who took uh, quite a number of wives. And um, as a result of that, he put up idols, uh, even in the temple, he, he made idols for his wives. They turned his heart from the Lord. Um, So this continues all throughout the uh, history of Egypt. We see that in Numbers chapter 22, 1, where Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel, which he can't do. He can only speak the things that the Lord tells him to do. So what does he do? He suggests that they commit fornication with the Moabites. Again, we're going to breed the Israelites out since the seed is supposed to come through them. In 2 Kings 11, Queen Athaliah kills all the seed royal one of the sons is hidden, that would be Joash, and the uh, he's hidden by the priests and raised by the priests. But again, it's, he's a type of Satan who's endeavoring to kill out the royal line. We roll to the New Testament, and I already mentioned about what Herod did. He tried to kill all of the children aged two and younger, hoping he would kill uh, the Messiah that was to come. So we can appreciate that Satan is the one behind this this opposition, and so Pastors in Canada are going to be arrested. It might come to this country uh, in some point uh, forward. I don't know. Um, you did hear the interviewers on those videos ask the question, well, you know, they, they made reference to their constitutional rights were being violated just like ours were. There's no legal reason they can, um, no legal authority by which they really can be shutting down churches, but they, they successfully did it. Um, so they're, they're violating their own rules. And so we can appreciate that Satan is the one who is behind this opposition of the church. It is not rational. It is in the spiritual realm where this war um, takes place. And so the persecution that we see throughout the book of Acts is what we would expect to see in this world. And I have a list of all, you know, which we've covered in the past, all of the places where the persecution took place in the book of Acts. And yet we know that the gospel will go into all the earth and it will. Uh, the Lord says uh, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is exactly what uh, the Apostle Paul said in Second Timothy there when he stood by himself. I'll put that in quotes before Caesar. He said, nevertheless, the Lord stood with me. So the Lord is the um, power, the authority behind the church. He rules and reigns over everything. He is sovereign over everything. And so because... Um, The Lord has determined that Paul will go to see Caesar. That's exactly what's going to happen, and none of these men can keep anything else from happening than that Paul would go to uh, Rome and stand before Caesar. So what reason might someone give for putting Paul to death? And there's a little clue here in the subtlety of the language in uh, verse 26. Um, The historian's um, help us appreciate this. In verse 26, um, we see that um, Festus doesn't know what charges to lay against um, the apostle Paul, and he doesn't know what to write, Augustus, but Paul has made an appeal to Augustus, so I've, I've determined to send him there. And in verse 26, there's a shift in the language here, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. A few years before that, the Caesars would not be referred to as Lord. It was a title they would not take unto themselves and would not receive. However, in the, in the history of, of things, when this uh, took place, they did take that title as Lord. Now look over at verse uh, chapter 26, verse 15. That's when the Apostle Paul, he's been knocked down, and he says, Who art thou, who art thou Lord? Well, a great deal of persecution um, came upon the Christians because they would not call Caesar Lord. They would only call Christ Lord. And so you see this little subtlety shift here in a title that the Caesars then began to take upon themselves. And this, we're speaking of Nero here. And we know that under Nero, the persecution against the Christians really ramped up. He was very, very brutal uh, and cruel to uh, Christians. So Paul is going to go before um, Caesar. And there are no charges um, against him. He's done nothing contrary to Roman law anywhere. He's a Roman citizen, so he's entitled to Roman rights. So we, as as Christians in this nation, as they endeavor to persecute us, I mean, we will appeal to the law and say, you know, the Constitution, we have the uh, First Amendment of the Constitution, which says we can gather uh, without any uh, interference from the uh, government. Um, Nevertheless, we've suffered interference from the government in violation of the Constitution. But we can appeal to the law just like the Apostle Paul did. So there's nothing laid worthy to his charge. He didn't violate any of the Roman laws. He didn't violate any of the uh, the Jewish laws, which is um, one of the things that he's sharing as he's speaking to King Agrippa here, which King Agrippa would appreciate. Um, And so why else would they behead him in Rome? Well, because he refused to call Caesar Lord. I'm speculating. We don't know why. We just know that he died there. But he's not going to deny his Lord and um, Christ. He's not going to deny Christ, that Lord, and uh, he's not going to call anybody else Lord, and, and neither should we, um, because there is only one Lord, and that's our, uh, our King. Our true King is Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. So um, continuing now to, to chapter 26, um, he has no charges. He doesn't know what to charge him with. And it, quite frankly, I would be embarrassed to send a man in bonds to Caesar and like, what's he doing? Why is he here? There's no charges he can lay against him because he has not done anything. Certainly, done nothing worthy of murder. And not only has he done nothing worthy of murder, in verse 31 of Acts 26, a, um, the, the conclusion is when all of these people have talked to themselves, talks amongst themselves, this man has done nothing worthy of death or of bonds. He should not even be incarcerated. There's no reason why, this, why he's got bonds on him. And in a very conspicuous way, in, in verse 1, um, we see that when Paul stretches forth his hand here, obviously he's, one of the things that he's showing is that he has um, chains on his hands. Now he says he's happy here that he would speak before King Agrippa, and uh, Festus makes a similar comment, that he, he's, he's glad that uh, Agrippa's going to hear this. Um, this comes from Josephus, that... Um, King Agrippa was an expert in the uh, in Jewish laws. Obviously, he's fourth generation Herod, who had ruled in that area for quite a number of years, so these ought to be intimately afi- uh, familiar with uh, Jewish laws and the things that are going on there. But Josephus says that he was the president of the temple and temple treasuries. Now, I don't know what that is because it's not an office that appears in the scriptures, but nevertheless, he was politically um, um, attached to the uh, Sanhedrin and the things that were going on in the Jewish council. Uh, Josephus says that he had the power to appoint the high priest. So Agrippa ought to know what things are going on here, and certainly over in verse 26 when the uh, the apostle is making appeal here, he says this thing was not done in a corner. He's speaking of the crucifixion. None of the things that took place with respect to Uh, What the Jews were doing in Jerusalem was done in a corner. I mean, we know that the temple sits on a hill, for goodness sakes. And so the entire temple sacrificial system was always speaking about what to do about sin and what's the point of having a sacrifice and talk about the forgiveness of sins if there is no resurrection. I mean, what's the point? It it defies logic that you would have a a, a Sadducee as a high priest, which they did during the time of uh, Christ and uh, with... um, I think perhaps during the time of Paul here, too, that they were Sadducees. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. What in the world you are doing on the Day of Atonement, I have no idea, if you don't expect there to be um, a judgment to come and a uh, resurrection. So in verse 3 here, he says, I'm glad that um, I get to speak before you because I know thee to be an expert and all uh, customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. <clears throat> so I'm glad that I get to talk to you in front of this group here because you know about what um, what the law is. And so he begins to give, give a little bit of his genealogy in terms that I have been here and uh, been associated with this process since my very youth, and I was raised as a Pharisee, which is the most straightest sect of the religion Um, with respect to what the Jews um, have come to appreciate. As a result of being a Pharisee, then King Agrippa would certainly know that Paul knows the rules of engagement for temple um, sacrifice, for coming into the temple, and therefore he would not do, as a Pharisee, he would certainly do nothing contrary to their laws, because not only did they obey the law, but they added to it and um, were the more zealous to pursue um, a legalistic approach God Um, and so he says in verse 6 here and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers well what is the hope that was made unto them what was the promise the promise was that the Messiah would come I'm being judged here because of the hope and he says under which promise our 12 tribes instantly serving God uh, night and day hope to come For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Hey, the hope has come. Christ has come. They're still waiting for the Messiah to come. And so uh, that's what I'm being um, um, charged with, or that's why I'm being uh, persecuted, is because of this hope. is because of Christ. Christ comes in the volume of the Scripture. We read about that in uh, Psalm chapter 40, I think it's verse 7. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I come to do thy will, I delight to do thy will, O O my Lord, thy law is within my heart. Christ is what everything in the Bible speaks of. And so uh, Paul has, has understood and appreciated that Christ has in fact come, which the historical narrative says he did in fact come. And so he's speaking also of the resurrection. And I mentioned last week that every single time... Paul comes before these people. He's talking about the resurrection. Last Sunday, we were in John chapter 6, and from John chapter 5 through John chapter 6, um, Jesus himself speaks of the resurrection time and time again, four times, let alone in John chapter 6, in that one section we were reading, where he's speaking about himself as the bread that God has sent from heaven. Four times he speaks about the resurrection, and he is the one who raises people from the dead. So, He says here in verse 8, Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Well, if you're an expert on what's been going on in Israel, you should have an appreciation and understanding of all that's written in the law and in the prophets um, and in the Psalms. You should understand what's written in there, that there is an expectation that there would be a resurrection and that God would certainly be the agent uh, behind that. Uh, And so why would you think that's incredible? And so I don't think he thinks it is incredible. So then he talks about, in verse 9 and 10, about the persecution of the saints um, that he has done. And the word saint there comes from the the Greek word holy. So he's using the word holy, that these people are holy. So, again, Agrippa should have an appreciation of what it means to be holy and, and, uh, and what that's all about. And so he's saying, I persecuted them. And as we have talked about in the past, he who formerly persecuted now becomes persecuted Himself in verse 11 he talks about how he punished them he had authority from the chief priests and scribes to go and persecute them not only within uh, Israel proper but in this case he was going up to Damascus where he had this um, encounter with the Lord but he persecuted them even unto strange cities and he's done that with their authority. So everything he's talked about um, up to this point is something that if the Jews were there to uh, testify against him, they would be able to affirm. Yes, he learned, uh, came to Jerusalem at a young age and he learned at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. Um, we as chief priests did, in fact, give him a commission to go up to Damascus and these other places and to persecute and to incarcerate um, Christians. He was there when we were casting votes to kill these people, to um, put them to death because they had, quote, blasphemed uh, the Lord. Um, So they would know all of that. They would know his history with them, but they're they're not there to testify. So verse 12, he says, I went into Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests." And then he talks about what took place there. And we should appreciate that the light from Christ is above the brightness of the sun. That's verse 13. Christ is the light of the world. And uh, it also says that of us Christians, that we are lights of the world, too. with uh, We'll spell that with a little L. Christ is the capital L. And the Bible refers to him as the son of of righteousness. And so when you look around at the way God has orchestrated the universe, we see that the sun gives off light that represents Christ. The moon would be the church. It would be you and me. And the degree to which we walk in conformity to the Lord, in obedience to him, and spend time in prayer, and meditating upon the word, that we would give off his light, Uh, we would reflect that light. So uh, walk in disobedience, and just like the moon goes through its phases and the light uh, um, wanes, your light too, and your testimony and your witness will wane too. So it's incumbent upon us and prudent for us to spend time in the word, and time in prayer, and time with the Lord so that we can reflect um, his light um, to a greater degree. So he says here, they they all fell to the ground. And uh, the Lord says to him, calls him by name because the Lord knows all of his sheep. He calls his sheep by name and they know his voice. And we see that with Paul. He knows his voice because he immediately says, um, Lord, what would they have me to do? <laughs> he knows exactly who he's talking to. Um, he says, it's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And that's in the context of like a shepherd's goad, a a uh, stick, if you, if you will, that has a prick up uh, an end on it that's pointed there you where you can move an ox in the direction you want it to go and that's what the lord does with his people um he shepherds them he leads them he comes behind them he uh, leads them where he wants them to go even before you were a, a believer even before you were a believer he's leading you and he's shepherding you and he's taking you where he wants you to go and so what he's what he's saying here is that you know i'm kind of pushing you in a direction here and you're resisting it Without a doubt, those people that uh, the Apostle Paul had compelled to blaspheme had been preaching the gospel to him. I mean, he wasn't just grabbing them and 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 uh, putting a mask over their mouth. They were speaking to him and probably sharing the gospel to him. Um, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, that's what's happening today. Masks are being put over people in church. <laughs> Um, So he had heard the gospel, and you're resisting it, and so that's the way it is. The carnal mind is at enmity with God, and unless God reaches out and uh, illuminates you, gives you ears to hear and eyes to see, you will not appreciate Christ for who he is. He's got to shine that light in your heart that you will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the Lord does that very thing to the apostle Paul. And so he says that you're persecuting me. I am Jesus whom thou persecuteth, and uh, again, it's incumbent for us to appreciate our unity um, with God through Christ and how any persecution against you as a Christian is against Christ himself. He is so um, one, so much unified with us that it's an attack against him personally. And um, they will deal with him over his persecution of you. Um, Verse 16, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. This is why I've appeared to you, to make thee a minister and a witness. And I shared with us that that uh, often misquoted verse: Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It doesn't set you free, it makes you free. Christ works with you every step of the way to make you free. If you just open the door, people won't go. Christ has got to come in here. He's got to take you, grab you, and make you free. And so he says, I'm going to make you a minister or a servant. You will be subordinate um, to me, and you will serve me. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did every step of the way from that moment on, is he was a servant of the Lord, and he was a witness. Most of the things both of the things which he has seen, past tense, and those things in the which I will appear unto thee. And the Lord has appeared to the Apostle Paul a number of times. We've talked about that in the book of Acts. It's going to appear to him again in the next chapter. We talked about that in terms of telling him, yeah, you're going to go talk to Caesar. But we know in 2 Corinthians that he took Paul up into the third heaven and uh, revealed a number of things to him. And so Paul is uh, always speaking from a perspective of the things that are recorded here for us. are are given to uh, us by God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so the Lord worked through the Apostle Paul to give us most of the New uh, Testament. And so what is he going to do? He says here that I'm going to deliver thee from the people. Now that, if you consider how this sentence is put together, it sounds somewhat oxymoronic. Deliver ye from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. And so what he's speaking about here, he's speaking about um, sanctification, Because it seems strange that he would deliver him from the people and then yet send him to the people. So what he's talking about here, he's talking about um, experiential um, sanctification. So I want to uh, talk about sanctification for just a minute here. What does sanctification mean? Well, it means to be set apart. It means to be set apart. So uh, Paul, like every Christian, is really set apart unto the Lord positionally from before the foundation um, of the world. If you uh, look at what's written in um, Ephesians chapter 1, I'll read. Uh, pick it up in verse 3, Ephesians chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, um, according as he hath chosen us in him, when? From before the foundation of the world that we should be holy without blame before him in love. So before the foundation of the world, God knows every single individual whom he is going to save, whom he is going to die for, and has set them apart unto himself in love or in Christ, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, who's the beloved, that would be Christ. So it's about setting you apart from before the foundation of the world, setting you apart in Christ. And there are a number of other um, verses that speak to this. Um, But what I want to share with us is, so there's positional sanctification and there's experiential sanctification. And experiential sanctification is what the Apostle Paul is going to demonstrate for us when the Lord opened his eyes, his life took a different turn at that point, as should every Christian's life have taken a turn when the Lord revealed himself to them. You were interested in the things of the world at that time, just like the Apostle Paul says that he was <coughs> um, chasing after um, political control and authority. He was um, persecuting the church, and he was, um, I think, I forget the language. He talks about being above many, his equals, So he was a real political animal climbing up in the political structure of the um, of the Jewish um, political authority. And suddenly his life took a different turn, um, as should have yours. The things that you used to be interested in before you became a believer, you should not be interested in those things um, now. Your life should have taken a turn. And so that would be uh, what I would call experiential sanctification, where the Lord has given you a new heart and you used to desire the things of the world, but you don't desire them anymore. I mean, Paul says that earlier in the book of Acts when he says, I've coveted no man's uh, silver, um, or gold. And that's because he has no interest in it because he appreciates the temporal uh, nature of this world. He says that in Acts chapter 20, verse 33, I've coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. He has no interest in the things of this world. Only His only interest is in doing what the Lord said he would do, serving the Lord and being a witness um, for Christ. And that should be where our heart is too. Our heart should not be in the things of this world, but rather... Um, to uh, the things of, of Christ. And so that, this is a comment I want to make. The, the church has, in the past, let's say, I'll call it 22 years, have, sometimes they get caught up in things that are happening, so much so that they're not focusing on Christ as much as they should. You remember Y2K a number of years ago? Oh, yeah. That was before your time, Y2K. Everybody thought the world was going to like stop rotating around its axis because, like, all the clocks couldn't go from, you know, 1999 to the year, you know, 2000. And so Christians were doing strange things. They were either taking on debt because they weren't going to have to pay it back or they were selling every, giving everything away, you know, and they thinking the world was going to end. So they took their eyes off of Christ and put their eyes on something else. Um, Harold Camping had been teaching for a number of years that the world was uh, going to come to an end, and he picked a couple dates. My wife and I were in Washington, D.C., and he had people had spent all of their money, rented these trucks with big signs on it about how the world was going to end on such and such a date, um, and it didn't happen. Again, they took their eyes off of Christ and put them on something else. They put their eyes on a date. Um, much of the church this day has their eyes on the um, geographical physical city of Jerusalem with the expectation that something's going to happen over there and have taken their eyes off of the heavenly Jerusalem. So what I'm sharing with us here, I know we've been uh, we spent a lot of time talking about um, what's going on with respect to um, COVID, but again, let's not take our eyes off of Christ. Let's be focused on Christ and not get caught up in this. And I know it's been heavy on our hearts because we're living it right now, but in any event, I just wanted to make that comment. Let's always keep our eyes on on Christ because the Lord has made us servants and witnesses. And I don't know when he's going to pull the plug on this earth, but I know that when he pulls the plug, I'm going to glory. (laughs) 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 Um, So what is he going to do? He says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles um, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That is exactly what Jesus says He is going to do, in Luke chapter 4, when he's in the synagogue, he reads from a section of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and verses 2, halfway through, I think, verse 2. That's what we do when we preach the gospel, is we translate people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the power of Satan to the control and authority of God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me, Christ. So all of of this is rooted in in Christ. And so um, Jesus says to his disciples uh, on one occasion, I think it's in, let me see if it's John 14, 12. Yeah, John 14, 12. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. What he's talking about is, you know, I've ministered here um, in a physical realm um, within the scope of of my presence, but when I leave and send the Holy Ghost, every one of you are going to go out into the world and do the things that I was doing here, but you're going out into all the world. So in the context of doing greater things, he's not talking about we're going to be raising people from the physical death unto life. But he's talking about there's going to be thousands of us and indeed millions eventually going out into the world and bringing the gospel into uh, the whole world, translating people from darkness to light, the power of Satan unto, um, unto God. So that's what the church does. And he says that, go ye forth into all the world and uh, make disciples upon people, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Ghost. So in verse 19, Paul says, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, First, I went to Damascus, and he starts preaching as soon as he gets to Damascus. Then he goes down to Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then goes to the Gentiles, um, telling people to turn to God. Same thing John the Baptist was saying in terms of repent and believe. Repent and believe, and that's what he's telling people to do as well. And for this cause, verse 21, The Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me." (laughs) The Jews are trying to kill me. They're actually the ones that are in violation of any Roman law because they're trying to kill me without a cause. Three times have they tried to kill him. They tried to kill him there on the temple ground. They uh, were fixing to tear him apart there. And the first time they had the, um, with um, Claudius Lystra. Then they laid in wait. They had a vow. They tried to kill him. And so uh, Claudius Lystra moves him down to Caesarea. When he gets down to Caesarea, the Jews petition um, Maybe uh, Festus, that he would bring him back up, in which case they would try to kill him on the way back up. So they've been, they've been trying to kill him. They're, they're the ones who are in violation of the law. They would not try him according to their law, but rather contrary to their law. Paul acknowledges before them all in verse 22 that he has obtained help from God, that he would continue to witness both to small and great, and that's exactly what he's doing right now in front of King Agrippa. He's witnessing to both... Small and great, um, saying nothing else other than that which was written in uh, the books of Moses that should come. The gospel hasn't changed. I'm preaching the same thing that the Old Testament preached. And King Agrippa, you should know that and understand that, being that you're an expert um, in the law. Verse 23 that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should be raised from the dead. If he's raised from the dead, that means he had to die. And so you should understand the things that were written in the prophets and in the Psalms. Psalm 22, we all know about that. Jesus himself quotes that from the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you were to read Psalm 22, it's a messianic psalm speaking about how Christ would suffer. Psalm 69, it's another messianic psalm speaking about how Christ uh, would suffer. Um, Isaiah 52, another um, place that speaks about Christ himself. It says in verse 14 of Psalm 50, of Isaiah 52, um, As many as were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and the form more than the sons of man. Um, that goes into Isaiah 53, where it talks about how he will suffer for sins. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And it continues there. So, You should have understood these things that Christ must suffer. Um, But again, and it's interesting because they would accuse Paul of sedition, um, and yet they are looking for a Lord that they think is going to sit on the Davidic throne in a literal sense and restore the kingdom of Israel to the way it was under King David. To do that would be to rebel against Rome. So they are the ones who are constantly guilty of sedition against Rome, not Paul. Hey, His kingdom is not of this world. And the enemy that he's going to destroy would be sin and death itself not the Romans. So there should be an appreciation here because this is which the prophets and Moses did say would come. Verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should be raised from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles, which is what bringing the gospel is. It's bringing light here. As he thus spake for himself, Festus, with a loud voice, behaves himself like the fowl, in Matthew chapter 13, where he says, Thou art beside thyself, much learning doth make thee mad. In other words, everything he's saying here is foolishness and is utter nonsense. In Matthew chapter 13, verse um, 19, you don't have to turn there. It speaks about, this is the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understand it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receiveth seed by the wayside. King Agrippa is receiving the seed by the wayside. Satan, you know, a fowl is coming to snatch that right out of his heart. And so that's what um, Porcius Festus does. He he shouts that thing out there. And we can appreciate here how the Apostle Paul responds. And this is how all Christians should respond. He responds in a very... um, a very sober-minded way. Those are his own words there. He says, But I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things was hidden from him, for this was not done in a corner. He doesn't strive with Festus. He doesn't get sidetracked, doesn't get pulled into an argument. He's not going to remake his case here. Hey, I've preached the gospel here. You know, it's incumbent upon you to receive it, and we know that the Lord would have to apply it to his heart. But I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to get into a debate. He just preached the gospel, and I think the King Agrippa says, Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And so here we have this uh, appreciation between an intellectual understanding versus a belief in your heart. And we know that uh, Romans chapter 10 speaks about how belief must be in your heart um, i 'll say it again, the gap between the head and the heart is as wide as eternity and as deep as hell cannot be crossed by the by man. Only God can move that information down to your heart. So Agrippa does not believe he says almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You can never persuade somebody to be a Christian if you do persuade them. They will have only an intellectual apprehension of it, and there will come a day when they fall away from it uh, because they gain the ground through rational means, and they will lose it through rational means as well. They will, persecution will come. We just made a reference to the um, parable of the sower. Persecution will come. Things will come up in their life, and they will no longer um, hold intellectually those truths and so you cannot convince somebody and you should never try to because if you do you just kind of set them up and so you should always uh, help them to appreciate that only god can make them can open the word to them and only god can apply these truths to their heart so you're going to find in your christian walk i'm speaking to you younger people that there's going to be people that claim to be christians but 20 years from now they will not be walking in the faith Um, The book Pilgrim's Progress is wonderfully illustrative in this, and I've seen it in my life in this community, having been, this is the longest I've ever lived in any one place, but I've seen it over the years, how some people that will come into the church and they will go. Um, They will not um, persevere to the end because God is the one who preserves us. And so Paul then says here, um, I wed to God that not only thou, but all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. Paul is in chains, but he's the only free one there because he's free from the um, bondage of sin. He's no, uh, free from the bondage of the flesh, and he's free from the bondage of, of Satan. And so here they get up. The king gets up with his sister, Bernice, and the governor, and they all confer amongst themselves. And they all agree, hey, this guy has done nothing worthy of death nor of bonds. And then Agrippa says to Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. And so the Die is set, the cast is set, he's going to go to Caesar. And I don't read of any more witness to Israel, so I have my notes here. Israel's doom is sealed. They have rejected the gospel again. And uh, thus it was written in the scripture that they would do that very thing. And so they have nothing to do but wait for God's judgment upon them, which is going to come in 70 AD. And so we will close with that.